Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to our fourth and final podcast in our workplace law reform series, where we unpack the legislative changes that have recently come into operation under the Fair Work Act. My name is Shelley Williams. I'm a partner here in our Brisbane team, and I'm joined today by Emily Baxter, special counsel from our Sydney team. Hello, Emily. Hi, Shelley. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. In today's podcast, we're covering all of the remaining bits and pieces, really, which primarily relate to individual employment arrangements. So over the course of the last three podcasts, we've talked about and heard from our colleagues in relation to bargaining, industrial action and disputes, sexual harassment and respect at work. And today we're going to cover those individual employment arrangements and other sort of miscellaneous bits and pieces relating to all of the the remaining changes in the Fair Work Act. Before we dive into the changes to the the most recent changes to the Fair Work Act, um, paid domestic violence leave was recently introduced and came into effect from the 1st of February this year. So employees now receive 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave. There was a recent amendment made to clarify what needs to be placed on an employee's pay slip when they take that leave. Emily, do you want to talk us through that amendment? Yeah, sure. So ordinarily for payslip reporting requirements, employers will need to record precisely the form of leave that employees are taking. The changes to the regulations and the way that it operates for paid family and domestic violence leave are different. So on a payslip where an employee takes a period of paid family and domestic violence leave, the payslip must not record that the employee was taking a period of paid leave for that time that they were on paid family and domestic violence leave. Instead, the payslip needs to record that the amount was paid to the employee either for the performance of the employee's ordinary hours of work or as a different kind of payment that relates to the performance of the employee's work, such as an allowance or a bonus or the payment of overtime, something to that effect. Yeah. The payslips can, can Shelley, record that the employee was on a period of paid leave of a different kind, such as annual leave, for example, where the employee makes the request to the payslip. Yeah records the family and domestic violence leave in that way. Excellent. All right, moving on to the pay secrecy and job advertisement amendments. Essentially, in relation to pay secrecy, there's now a new workplace right, which is added to the Act that allows employees to ask other employees about and disclose their own remuneration and relevant terms and conditions of their employments, including things like their pay rates, as well as their hours of work. This allows employees to use this information essentially to potentially determine what others are remunerated and to determine whether their remuneration is fair and and equitable and comparable in the circumstances as compared to others in the workplace and in the industry. Employees are not compelled to disclose the information about their remuneration and retain the right and not to share that information, but it is now essentially a workplace right to ask ask the question, essentially. And so therefore, similar to other workplace rights that are covered by the general protections provisions, it's unlawful to take adverse action against an employee where they seek to exercise that right. The other thing in relation to the pay secrecy provisions is that it's invalid and it's prohibited to issue and provide a contract, an employment contract, which contains pay secrecy or confidentiality terms in relation to what an employee gets paid or or what they're remunerated. So from a practical level, 
really for employers, the key thing to to think about and consider is obviously your employment contract. So um, have you considered and reviewed your employment contracts to ensure that those any existing pay secrecy provisions are removed? That's a fairly sort of a, a simple um, step that can be taken quite immediately. And then there's also, I guess, more nuanced issues that come up in the context of, of pay secrecy. And Emily, we, we've been talking about it in the context of deeds, particularly where an employee is still employed um, and you're entering into a deed which relates to potentially an underpayment claim. Do you want to provide your views on, on that and how you might go about that? Because it is a bit of a tricky one. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Shelley. So I think uh, firstly, it's important to point out that what we're discussing now in terms of the pay secrecy provisions will only relate to settlements for for claims or deeds of release and underpayments that relate to existing employees. For former employees, the pay secrecy provisions won't apply because they're not an an employee at that particular point in time. So I think my, my view is that where you're looking to include in a deed of release the settlement of an underpayment claim, then of course the the actual amount or the the remuneration that you're giving to an employee in settlement of that underpayment claim would be captured by the definition of remuneration in the pay secrecy provisions. And so you wouldn't be able to prevent an employee from disclosing that they had been entitled to those particular amounts or that those amounts formed part of their remuneration. But I certainly think that the pay secrecy provisions won't extend necessarily to the disclosure of the settlement of any dispute and won't necessarily extend to perhaps even lump sum payments in settlement of disputes. But but as I said, will extend to the employee being able to disclose that that, that amount formed part of their remuneration. So I think if you're looking to draft deeds of release or other settlement agreements, those agreements will be captured and it will be important to make sure that you're not prohibiting employees from disclosing that that amount formed part of their remuneration. But as with any kind of confidential settlement of either litigation or a dispute that arises, uh, you can put some parameters around confidentiality of, of certain aspects of yeah, that. Yeah, resolution. so it's, there's, there's some nuanced drafting that needs to take place now for deeds of release which relate to current employees around those confidentiality provisions. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting interesting point. And then the only final point that I just wanted to, to touch on was in relation to, to job advertisements. It's not, I don't anticipate that this is going to be particularly significant, but the provisions essentially say that jobs can't be advertised at a lower rate than what's required by the Act or an award or an enterprise agreement, casual employee roles need to include a casual loading. Peace rates, so again, not particularly common, but where there are peace rates being paid, they have to specify or state the, the periodic rate that applies and where a pay rate is updated. So particularly around sort of June, July, when wages and rates in, in awards increase, if you've got an ad that is up during that period and a pay rate increases, you have to update the advertisement to reflect the change in remuneration. Emily, let's move on to the changes that have come into effect in relation to fixed term contracts. Now, these changes don't actually commence operation until the 6th of December of this year, but we're already experiencing that many of our clients are looking at their fixed term and their maximum term contracts and starting to consider which amendments need to be made to those contracts. Do you want to just set out the new changes and and what's proposed? 
So the one of the um, objects of the amendments that was, or, or one of the amendments that was included to the Fair Work Act was to amend the objects uh, to include the promotion of job security. And one of the, the following or the subsequent changes to that particular object was to impose some limitations around fixed-term contracts where there previously haven't been limits around those. What the changes will do, and, and when they come into effect, as Shelley said, in December of this year, is to prohibit fixed-term contracts that operate for periods longer than two years. And the reason that, that that's important to consider now is that that period of two years will take into account contracts that are already on foot. And so looking now to see how your fixed term contracts are drafted or including maximum term contracts, we should just point out that while the, the Act talks about fixed term contracts, it does include maximum term contracts in these limitations. Just making sure that the contracts, however um, you're using them, can only, as I said, last for a period of two years. Now, there's some, there are some other parameters around that as well. So the, the first kind of parameter is that period of two years and a fixed-term contract can't be for a longer period. The second restriction or, or parameter around the use of fixed-term contracts is that starting from December of 2023, a fixed-term contract cannot be extended by more than one period So or, or can't be extended more than once. So if you're using rolling fixed-term contracts, for example, you won't be able to roll that contract over more, for more than one extension. There's a third parameter around that, and that is the use of consecutive contracts. So rather than rolling over the contract, you're using a new contract on each occasion, and each occasion is a fixed-term contract. The, the restriction around the use of that is that the total period of the contracts can't be longer than the, or can't be greater than that initial two-year period that we spoke about. There are, as with many <laughs> things in the law, some exceptions to that particular rule where those limitations don't apply. Some of the key ones that I think will be important, Shelley, and, and jump in if you, you're seeing any others with your clients but I think certainly in relation to training arrangements or apprenticeship contracts because as we're all aware those contracts can be for a period of time depending on the particular training arrangement apprenticeships for example are usually a four-year contract so you're still able to use a fixed-term contract in in that particular circumstance. There are also some exceptions where the employee is engaged under the contract and they're performing a distinct and identifiable task, performing specialised skills. So in those circumstances where you might need somebody for longer than two years to perform those particular tasks or skills, that's, that can be an exception to the use or the limitation on the, of the two-year period. And that's quite an interesting one because it's it's not defined. So the, the use of that language, distinct and identifiable task involving specialised skills is not defined in any way. So I think that there's going to be some interesting arguments potentially raised around what is a specialised skill and, and whether you've whether you're offering a role which is captured by that specialisation or whether it's it's not particularly specialised um, and therefore you know you've fallen foul of, of the provisions essentially. Yeah, it'll be an interesting kind of space to watch, Shelley, as the, the law develops once the, the provisions actually kick in at the end of the year. There are also some exceptions to the rule where the particular role is funded by the government, for example, and that funding might be for a period of longer than two years, um, but that there's no reasonable prospect that following that period the funding will be renewed. And there's also an exception where the employee is earning over the high income threshold when the contract is entered into. The, the Act does also provide that the regulations might can include some further exceptions. Those exceptions haven't yet been included in the regulations if there are to be any, but it will be interesting again to see whether or not the, the categories of exceptions are expanded once those changes come into effect. 
There's a further limitation around the use of fixed-term contracts that we included in the Fair Work Act, and that is that it will be unlawful to terminate an employee or to, to at the end of a fixed-term contract, end the employment relationship with that particular employee and then employ another or a second person to perform the same or similar duties on a fixed-term contract. So anti-avoidance provisions effectively. Yeah, and they're, they're all civil penalty provisions as well, aren't they? They are, that's correct. So there, there can be, um, I guess, equal to fines that are imposed on businesses for using fixed-term contracts once the, the provisions come into effect. So that's one of the later changes that's going to be coming in to the Fair Work Act. There are some other amendments that are being made to fit also within this object of promotion of job security. And one of those, Shelley, that, that you'll take us through is around flexible working arrangements. Yeah, that's right, Emily. Um, so there Family and domestic violence um, and pregnancy have now been added to the existing flexible work working arrangements provisions which allow employees to make requests. So those circumstances will now also be captured um, by the flexible working arrangement provisions in the Act. There are a couple of procedural steps that have been added to the Act now in relation to flexible work arrangements. I think at a practical level for employers, not a great deal probably changes. Um, In practice, you're probably already doing this, but these are now legislative steps that employers are required to take. So when a request is made, an employee still follows the same process. Now an employer has to take some additional steps. So they have to, they're required to discuss the request with the employee and genuinely try to reach an agreement before any request is refused. Taking into account those steps, an employer can still refuse a request on account of reasonable business grounds and those remain unchanged, which has to be done having regard to the consequences of the refusal for the employee. So in taking account those factors in terms of whether a request can be refused. An employer has to, as I said, discuss the request and genuinely try to reach agreement with the employee and also discuss changes that could be made to accommodate those circumstances, consider the consequences of the refusal on the employee and only refuse on the basis of those reasonable business grounds and provide the refusal in writing, including the details of the reasons for the refusal and any other changes that the employer would be willing to take into account in accommodating the employee's circumstances. So the the provisions are really imputing a higher level of collaboration and cooperation in respect of really genuinely trying to um, figure out whether a flexible work arrangement can be provided and, and really exploring all of those potential alternatives which might exist within your operation. Importantly, and I think quite uniquely in these provisions, the Fair Work Act is now going to be empowered to deal with disputes about flexible work arrangements, including by arbitration where an order could be made by the Fair Work Commission, for example, to affirm the refusal. So um, the Commission might find that the employers has provided reasonable business grounds. But importantly, the Commission could also, for example, grant the employee's request or they could make changes or impose changes on the accommodation that is being proposed to be made in respect of the request. Um, So those are quite far-reaching powers of discretion which are now 
uh, within the Fair Work Commission in respect to flexible work arrangements. What that means for employers is that if an employee makes a request, it's refused. I think that's probably going to be the most likely circumstance where these applications end up in the Commission. They can then make an application to the Commission to essentially seek the Commission's assistance in, in trying to get the outcome of, of obtaining that flexible work arrangement. So I think given the the greater power that the Commission will now have, I think a lot of employers are going to really be turning their minds to, well, how do we avoid ending up in the Commission and what can we do at an operational level to actually um, try and accommodate a request for flexible work arrangements? So I think that there's going to be a shift as well on the part of employers around how you deal with those requests internally with a view of obviously avoiding having to, to deal with it by an independent umpire. There are also a couple of additional items that have been added. So there's now gender equality, which has been introduced as an object of the Act, and that really sits alongside all of the, the sexual harassment and the respect at work changes, which we've already talked about in our previous podcast. But it all sort of um, it, it, it's all hanging together as part of that focus in these um, legislative amendments on gender equality and equal remuneration and pay. So all of those themes have been captured by these provisions. The only final thing, Emily, that I thought it would be useful for us to touch on is the small claims division and those changes and how they affect, they might affect employers. So the small um, claims division, Shelley, currently sits at a, a cap of um, $20,000 compensation or, or payment for entitlements that employees might be seeking. Uh, and this allows an employee to use what's called the small claims procedure through the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. And that process really is much less formal than uh, you would usually expect in court proceedings, there's generally no legal representation and there's far limited testing of the evidence that you might ordinarily find and uh, I guess less of an opportunity or, or less of that formalised submission making process than you would ordinarily, ordinarily find in a court. The, the changes that will be implemented in July of this year are to increase that threshold amount from $20,000 to $100,000. Um, so it's a fairly significant increase in the amount that an employee might be able to or might be claiming in perhaps unpaid wages or, or unpaid entitlements to be able to use that small claims division and that, that far less formal process. The, the second kind of change that comes along with that links back to those amendments that we were just talking about earlier, Shelley, around the use of fixed term contracts. The scope for the small claims procedures is also going to be extended to dealing with disputes relating to contraventions of those new limitations on fixed term contracts and whether, for example, that limitation has the effect of making a particular contract invalid. And what we're likely to see then with that increase is that employees who, who were on fixed term or maximum term contracts might be making claims, for example, for redundancy or termination payments at the end of a fixed term period where that contract purportedly didn't comply with those restrictions that will be implemented. It also means, I think, that there's going to be an increase perhaps in the number of, of claims that are made through the small claims division where an employee is alleging an underpayment of wages, for example, or a lost opportunity to entitlement. So, for example, not being paid annual leave or personal leave when they're entitled to, or they say they're entitled to those particular payments. In Along with the amendments, the court, if they make a cost order, will be able to include in the cost orders the filing fees that the applicant paid to the court. Those filing fees are generally not um, significant. 
uh, in the scheme of litigation, but that is an additional cost that might be factored in where an employee is successful in, in their application. As Shelley mentioned, those were the key changes that we want to talk you through in terms of the Secure Jobs Better Pay bill. Some of those, as we've we've identified have already commenced and some are due to commence later in the year. You may recall from the last federal election that there were certainly a a more significant number of items that were up for debate and up for discussion in terms of amendments and and some of those are um, now being flagged by the government as as further amendments. Shelley, did you want to talk us through what those, give us a flavour of what those further amendments might be? Yes, certainly. And the Minister has already indicated that there will be further legislative changes that kick in this year and that the consultation with unions and employer associations and employers generally has already commenced in respect of them. Some of those changes include same job, same pay protections. So that's been bandied around for a a while now, um, but that's back on the agenda. Uh, The definition of casual employees is back on the agenda and it's been flagged directly as being part of the the next uh, tranche of reforms, criminalisation of wage theft. So there are some state jurisdictions where wage theft and underpayments are already criminalised and there's an intention for that to extend at a federal level, unfair contracts contracts for subcontractor arrangements and some changes to the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal. The other area of legislative reform, which is already before the parliament, is the Workplace Gender Equality Amendment, um, closing the gender pay gap bill. Those reforms include WGIA, um, publishing employer-level gender pay gaps for the first time, as well as requiring employers to provide um, their gender equality reports to to Um, other governing bodies. It also includes setting a new requirement for policies or strategies around gender equality drivers and refining what employers report. And so if you haven't already, now is the perfect time to really start thinking about what your policies and procedures refer to, the way in which your diversity and inclusion strategy and any policies consider these these changes as well as all of your workplace behaviour policies and sexual harassment policies and any prevention plans. So all of it is interconnected and should be considered as such, but that's just a bit of a flavour of what's what else is, is to come. Um, of course, if you have any questions about these workplace law reforms, get in touch with the team here at Kingston Reid. Thank you, Emily, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. We look forward to keeping you updated on the upcoming legislative changes this year, so please stay tuned.